Isaiah 6.1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting up on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voices of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. This is the very word of God. Good morning, Crosstown. The purpose of the message today is to give us the right view of God, a high view of God, of who God is and who we are in relationship to him. You see, we live in very interesting times. It seems that our sense of wonder has become terribly skewed. It seems the world is always seeking something new to catch its attention. It also seems to have lost any interest and wonder in God. Any talk of holiness seems alien, and the concept of sin sounds very foreign. In a day and age where most of the world has shifted its focus away from God, this passage is calling us to have a high view of God by presenting to us our eternal God in his holiness. Let me start by laying out the context for us. The passage starts by saying, in the year that King Uzziah died. Who was this King Uzziah? He had ascended the throne of Judah in the year 792 B.C., after God had given over his evil father, King Amaziah, to his enemies because he was proud and idolatrous. Uzziah's 52 years were the second longest and one of the most prosperous reigns in Judah. He sought the Lord for most of his life with the help of the prophet Zechariah. He prospered and grew strong. He defeated enemies, received tribute, improved agriculture, built fortified towers in Jerusalem, gathered a strong army, and may have even invented the catapult. He was very well accomplished. But, in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 16 says, but he reveled in his strength and he grew proud. And pride comes before the fall. When he forgot who was the reason For his success and power, he considered himself worthy of taking the office of high priest. 
by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. This was in the holy place, very deep, very close to the very holy of holies. But the law was clear. Only the high priest can burn incense morning and evening at this altar. The offices of king, priest, and prophet were always separate and different. It was not for the king to play priest. So when Uzziah entered the temple, the priests followed him. They rebuked him. They urged him to leave the temple before committing a greater sin. But he became very angry. And his anger, his wrath, was not for the glory of God. Instead of humbling himself, his sin of pride led to the sin of usurping someone else's office, which now led to wrath and then to judgment immediately. The high priest who would enter that place would have a frontlet on his forehead saying, Holy to the Lord. But now Uzziah had leprosy break on his forehead and then the rest of his body saying, He is unclean. God had rejected him. This happened in the year 750 BC, 42 years into the reign of Uzziah. And he remained a leper for the next 10 years, during which his son became his co-regent. Uzziah died and was buried a leper, unholy, unclean. Uzziah's life and death mark very important points in the history of Judah. In an age where some kings lasted only a few weeks, Uzziah's reign was long, in fact, the second longest after King Manasseh. It was prosperous, stable, and powerful. Despite his rebellion, there was surely a deep sense of national loss, of mourning, of future uncertainty, of waning power, and constant instability that would mark the life of Judah for the years to come. All these events set the background of the scene where the prophet Isaiah has an encounter with the divine. Isaiah is about to find out at the very beginning of his ministry in the year 740 BC that not only the departed king was unclean, but he himself and the whole people were unclean, unworthy and unholy. He is about to be arrested, dismayed, and undone by the holiness of God. At a time when the earthly king succumbed to his unholiness, the heavenly king is seated high and lifted up in holiness, reigning in power eternally. So as we meditate on this passage together today, we will examine the following four points. The holiness of God, the unholiness of man, the need for atonement, and the right response after reconciliation. The holiness of God, the unholiness of man, the need for atonement, and the right response after reconciliation. Let's start with the holiness of God. Isaiah may have started to have this vision in Solomon's temple, but it quickly transcends the earthly dimensions and limitations. You see, he would not be able to enter the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could do that, and that is once a year on the Day of Atonement. But Isaiah was now taken to a place where he was in the presence of the one true God. This God is the King of kings, King of heaven and earth, rightly seated upon a throne, reigning in power and majesty. There is not even a need to describe the throne, which Isaiah does not even do, because it is not important 
It is not as important as the one who is seated on the throne. It is not a match for the beauty and the glory of the one who is reigning, because that is captivating. Psalm 96.6 says, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. He is the majesty on high, on whose right hand Christ ascended and sat. In fact, this may well be a Christophany, a pre-incarnate vision of Christ, in which Isaiah calls the one seated on the throne, Lord, capital L, small o-r-d, which is master or Adonai, as opposed to what the seraphim says later, Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, meaning Jehovah. This quite well be a vision of Christ who was seated on the throne, whom David speaks of saying, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, my master and Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool in Psalm 110. Paul and John and the writer of Hebrews speak also of this Lord repeatedly as seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, our God is seated on the throne. Presidents come and go. Kings live and die. Empires rise and fall. But the Lord of hosts, the King, is enthroned forever and ever. There is no end to his kingdom. No one can usurp his throne. He does not run for office. It is established from everlasting to everlasting. He is enthroned in heavens and does whatever he pleases. He is the sovereign God who is high by his own nature, and he is exalted by his people acknowledging his majesty and giving him to him the glory that is due to his name. The psalm says, come, let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord our Savior, giving him the majesty and glory that is due to him. If we do not exalt him and give him glory, we will no more diminish the radiance of his being, then a cloud would diminish the true light and power of the sun. Its manifestation may be veiled for a while, but the sun is always there. And if we do not glorify God, the world may not witness the brightness of his radiance, but the heavens will declare the glory of God and the skies above will proclaim his handiwork. In fact, as he told the Pharisees, he will make of the stones instruments of glory. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We will not undo anything in the holiness and glory of our God. Our God is spirit. No one can see him. Yet every now and then, God condescends and reveals himself to us in a way that communicates to us visibly instruction and also comfort to us, his people. God presents himself in a way that we can understand, known as anthropomorphism. So we hear of the hand of God, so that we can understand a bit of what God is doing. We hear of his eye roaming back and forth. We hear of his feet. We hear of his robe. Psalm 93 one says, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. 
Do you understand these images that are given to us so that we can understand as human beings with our limited nature and with our limited senses some of his nature and character? The Lord is robed, and the tail of his robe is unlike any that you have seen. It's unlike any wedding dress, unlike any robe of the kings and queens of the earth. It covered everything in the temple. His robe is such in splendor that the hem, the edge of his robe, filled the whole temple, communicating authority, beauty, and grandeur. Isaiah was in the presence of divine royalty. Then Isaiah notices that there are heavenly creatures there above the throne, ready to serve and minister to God Most High. These seraphim, which the word means burning ones, have some similarities with us humans. They have faces, eyes, hands, and feet, but they are so unlike us because they are there, ever-present before God, willing to minister to Him. But they still covered their eyes and their feet and did not even look upon the beauty of God, yet they had their ears open, ready to hear His word and to do His bidding. And one cried to another in verse 3 and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. In Hebrew literature, repetition was the way of announcing that something was significant. The Hebrew language does not use the typical English approach of comparatives and superlatives, such as describing something as good, better, or best. But it repeats words to convey superiority. So when in the Old Testament it says someone fell into a pit or a deep pit, the Hebrew says someone fell into a pit pit. When it talks about pure gold, the Hebrew says gold, gold. There is nothing in the Word of God that is repeated three times besides this concept of holiness. God is holy, holy, holy. This is because God's holiness is supremely superlative that this is the only way it can be described. It is the only way it can be declared. One theologian, theologian said the central, primary, and definitive attribute of God is His holiness. R.C. Sproul said, any attempt to understand God without His holiness is idolatry. Holiness basically defines God. His holiness is not a response to our sin. It is not because we're sinners that He becomes holy. He is holy of His own nature. He is holy, holy, holy. His holiness is absolute consecration to His own self. He set Himself apart by His holiness from everything and everyone. He is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, other in His holiness. This is the only attribute of God that is repeated three times. God is love. God is merciful. God is glorious. God is exalted. God is all-seeing. God is all-knowing. God is sovereign. God is gracious. God is holy, holy, holy. Because He is holy... He is really, really, really holy. 
And because he is holy, everything he does is holy. His love is holy. His justice is holy. His mercy is holy. His grace is holy. His goodness is holy. His righteousness is holy. His plans are holy. His laughter is holy. His singing is holy. His word is holy. The Father is holy. The Son is holy. The Spirit is holy. He is, He was, He always will be. Holy, holy, holy. Holiness is His moral majesty. He is absolutely morally pure, and His morality is absolute. God is necessarily and unchangeably holy. He is not simply perfectly good. He is the source and standard of goodness and righteousness. God in his moral majesty is unapproachable by human beings. God is transcendent in his holiness, but imminent in his glory, which fills all the earth where we humans created by him are living. And one of God's purposes from the beginning of time is to make the whole earth the whole world, a holy dwelling place for himself and to bring his people into his holiness. Do you have a high view of God? Do you have a high view of his holiness? Do you have a high view and wonder and awe of this king? When Isaiah was in the presence of God, his view became immediately high of God, and rightfully low of himself. And here's where we look at our second point, the unholiness of man. God is holy by nature. He does not become holy. Human beings are not holy by nature. We are by nature children of wrath. We may become holy. We fear God not because he is powerful and we are weak, We fear God because he is holy, and we are not. When the holy God makes his presence known, everything trembles and shakes before him. Mount of Sinai trembled and shook. The land trembled and shook. And here the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called holy, holy, holy. God made his presence known. And this temple that shook is the place where heaven met earth, where God met his people at the time of the sacrifice. The sacrifice was by fire and by smoke, and God himself is a consuming fire, we are told. And here we see smoke filling the temple, mercifully limiting Isaiah from seeing God, whom no one can see and live. Isaiah is arrested by his vision. Even more than that, he is dismayed by the holiness of God and his revealed glory. He has no words to say, for in the presence of the holy majesty, he is utterly silenced. And the only thing that he can say under his lips, under his breath, is a curse on himself, saying, woe is me, I am undone. In chapter 5, Isaiah had spoken six woes against different types of sinners. And we know in Hebrew, number seven usually means something that is very significant. And this is the seventh curse that Isaiah speaks, and he says it on himself. 
because he is in the presence of the holy God. This was the climax of him knowing how sinful he was. In the presence of God, Isaiah's sin was uncovered because he is before the holy God. He is dismantled. He is disrobed. He is disarmed. There is no more concealment of the reality of his uncleanness, of his unholiness, of his unworthiness. Basically, Isaiah thought he was going to die. Uzziah was not the only one unclean. Isaiah was, and so were his people. The heart was sinful and deceitful. In Genesis 6, 5, we have a very sobering verse. That the first time I read, I had to read it over and over again to see what it was. It was right before the flood, and this should be something that should be sobering to us. The verse says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. This is total depravity. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And we wonder why a holy God would pour out his wrath against sin. And the organ that so often shows our sin is our mouth, our lips, our tongue. The same organ we use to praise, we also use to lie, to curse, to profane the Lord our God. It is the same organ we misuse when we draw near to our God with our mouth, but not with our heart. Isaiah speaks this curse on himself and is silent. There's nothing more he could say. His lips are sealed. His tongue can utter no more. His lips are dirty. His heart is even dirtier than his lips. And as he later says, his works are like filthy dirt. They are like filthy rags. This is a day of reckoning. He is in the presence of the Lord of hosts. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. We read in Hippech. This is the God of armies, Jehovah Sabaoth. Isaiah is paralyzed. Where can he flee? There's nothing he can do. Where can he hide? Is there anything he can contribute? This is the God of hosts, as the seraphim says, who gave David victory over Goliath, who defeated the chariots of Egypt, who opened the eyes of Elisha's servant to see the armies of God standing on the hills surrounding the enemy. He defeated the Amalekites. His angels struck 185,000 of the Arameans in one night. This is the God who will defeat the armies of our enemy and the beast, as we read in Revelation. This is the God of salvation. Faithful he was, faithful he will be. This is the God before whom Isaiah stands in desperate need for atonement. And here we move to examine our third point. If we are to stop here, there would be no hope. 
but I am not done yet, nor is this passage. How does a holy, pure God deal with sinners? Because he is holy, wrath against sin is a natural outworking of his holiness. Habakkuk 1.13 says, The eyes of the Lord are too pure to see evil and cannot look at wrong. The wrath of God must be satisfied as we sing in the hymn. Justice must be exacted. Our hearts cry for justice as human beings when we see injustice in this world. And the worse the crime or the bigger the injustice, the higher the demand for justice. Some money is stolen and a few people pay attention. A murder happens and we see more headlines. A child is kidnapped and tortured and suddenly there rises within us an immediate demand for justice. The bigger the injustice, the higher our demand for justice. We yearn for justice, but all the systems of the world keep falling short. But God who is infinitely pure and holy must exact justice for sin, which is infinitely an attempt to undermine the glory of God. Sin must be confronted. God is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and patience. God gives justice when he gives people what they deserve, which is what we would all deserve from God. He would be perfectly justified in exacting justice from all humanity. No one can claim that he or she received injustice at the hand of God. But God is merciful. He gives mercy when he does not give people what they deserve. Mercy is never obligatory, but God, who is rich in mercy, who does not owe us mercy, gives it to us lovingly. However, God cannot give his mercy, and I'm saying that here, God cannot give mercy without satisfying his justice without confronting sin, without pouring his wrath and vindicating his holiness. Otherwise, he would contradict himself. He would cease to be God. This would be fatal to his character if God gives mercy without justifying sin. Our God is different from the other deities of this world. He is not the Allah of the Muslims that I grew up around and knowing, who merely decides to overlook the sin of some without confronting it. He just merely decides not to do anything about it. That would be capricious, doing some but not the other. It would be a deity that is not bound by a moral character. This is not our God. Our God is holy by his own nature. So justice must be satisfied and sin confronted and dealt with definitively. And that's where sacrifice and the shedding of blood come. Looking forward to Jesus from Isaiah, we find the ultimate sacrifice. Through his condemnation, justice was made complete and the wrath of God was satisfied. In fact, justice was rendered upon Jesus on the cross where God poured his wrath. Beyond the six curses in chapter 5 and the seventh curse that Isaiah speaks here in chapter 6, the ultimate curse was on Jesus Christ, who made no sin, yet became sin 
for us, receiving the full curse of God and wrath upon himself, so that we may become reconciled to God and made holy. God does not grant mercy despite or against justice. He does it through justice that was poured out on Christ on the cross. It is through justice that God's mercy and our justification are brought forth. He is patient, and his forbearance means to lead us to repentance. Even more than mercy, God is gracious. God gives grace when he gives people what they do not deserve. By his sovereign and saving grace, he reconciles to himself through his divine degree by the blood of Jesus, which atones for sin. He does the work of regeneration. Neither we nor Isaiah have anything to bring. As the hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Looking back at this vision of Isaiah, a right view of God sees him in his holiness and sees us in our unholiness. There is a great chasm between us, but there is hope. Praise God, there is hope. Praise God that in this heavenly temple, there's not only a throne, but there's also an altar. This is the day of atonement. Isaiah is in the Holy of Holies, and there is an altar of sacrifice, of burning fire, of smoke. Fire on the altar, symbolizing the sacrifice of atonement, was such that the seraph had to take tongues to carry a coal toward Isaiah. The burning creature had to use a tongue to take a burning coal. Isaiah, on the other hand, mesmerized there, can only receive the wonder of this grace. There's nothing he could do. He knew he was a dead man. And you know what dead men can do to contribute to their resuscitation? They can do nothing. It is all a work of God. The act of salvation and atonement is a sovereign act of the God who specializes in lovingly giving life to dead people. And that's what he does to Isaiah by means of this burning coal, as he is immediately cleansed as the coal touches his lips. I love the words in Psalm 11:4, where it says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. Smoke did not prevent God from seeing Isaiah, who failed the test of holiness. But it did not end there. Praise God, it did not end there. The holy God graciously commanded and dispatched the seraph to sear Isaiah's lips by the burning coal. At that moment, two things happened simultaneously, as we see in verse 7. Guilt was taken away and sin was atoned for. He was saved from wrath and made pure. Payment has been made on his behalf. Justice has been satisfied. Mercy is given. Grace abounds. This is propitiation. This is the day of atonement. Sin, guilt, shame, and death are removed. Righteousness, light, life, and purity are freely bestowed upon his people. The Lord who is holy is also the Lord who makes holy, who sanctifies setting apart those who are his, calling us to be holy as he is holy, making himself the standard, and giving us his Holy Spirit and his grace, 
which are both sufficient and effectual to save and to sanctify. And he is faithful. What he commands, our sanctification, he also enables by his spirit. And here we come to our fourth point of consideration this morning, a right response after reconciliation. Once sin was atoned for and Isaiah was given life, his response did not remain silence and woe. His response was now embedded in this new reconciliation and identity in God. Before he and you and I were saved, we were cleansed. The only thing we can do is sin. As we heard in Genesis 6, 5, our intentions were only evil all the time. We were unable not to sin. We could not respond righteously to God. We were deaf to his voice. We were willfully ignorant of his commands. But when Isaiah and we were cleansed, we were given a new ability. The ability not to sin. The ability to do what is right. We were set free from bondage and entered the freedom of the children of God where we commit ourselves to his holiness. We willfully enter to serve the master. We were given power to be sanctified, to be set apart for the works of God that he has prepared for us. And so Isaiah heard the voice of God saying, whom shall I send and who shall go for us? Just like the seraphim were standing at the ready before God, willing to obey and to minister, even without them seeing him, so now was Isaiah. Newly regenerated by means of a burning coal on his lips, with a new heart that can now speak righteousness and respond to the will of God, nothing prevented him from hearing the voice of God. He no longer thought of how unclean the king was, of how depraved he himself was, and he was not paralyzed by the sin of the nation. He had seen the Holy One of Israel, and he had been transformed and given new desires. He was no longer a slave to sin, to fear, to unholiness. He was now free to respond in joyful obedience. It was not only freedom. It was even more than that. It was eagerness. It was eagerness and a zeal to present himself as a vessel, as a living sacrifice in the temple of God, cleansed by fire, willing to obey the Lord of hosts. He did not ask when. He did not wonder where are you sending. He did not demand to know his payment or what is going to be for his retirement. His response was to trust the Lord who is holy, the Lord who sanctifies, the Lord who sees, the Lord who knows, the Lord who saves, the King, the Lord of hosts. And he said, here I am. I am yours. All of me. Send me. The word of God grants us glimpses every now and then behind the curtains of heaven. It also promises us to participate in eternal glory and light and joy and celebration that are beyond anything we can comprehend. It also commands us to live in such a way that draws us closer into the likeness of our Savior and our future glorified selves. We find God's commands for us to be holy in many places. Leviticus 19, verse 2, 20, verse 7, 20, verse 26, 21, verse 8, Exodus 19, verse 6, and 1 Peter 1, 16. 
Paul reminds us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, that God has called us in holiness. Jesus commands us in Matthew 5, 48 to be perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And we are commanded in Hebrews 12, 14, to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Isaiah saw the Lord and he was transformed. He had a right and high view of God immediately. He saw holiness and recognized his holiness. He knew he could bring nothing, but by the loving kindness and mercy of God, he was cleansed and became holy by the work of God, and he was set apart by the will of God. He loved holiness. And like many of the people of faith, he looked forward to the heavenly city where righteousness dwells forever, where everything and everyone is holy. Let me tell you a little about this heavenly city through the following words that I adapted from a couple Puritan writers. What do you think you would like about heaven if you do not love holiness now? Heaven, we find, is altogether holy. The angels there are holy. The worship there is endlessly holy. The thrice holy God reigns there, giving holy light to his holy city. Therefore, if you find it hard to come to church, to sit through a service, to hear about God, and to give praise to him, what do you think heaven will be like? It will be no place for you unless at least the seed of holiness is sown and is growing in you now. Holiness is necessary to the Christian, and without it, we will never gaze upon the Lord in heaven. It is not absolutely necessary that you should be great or rich in this world, but it is absolutely necessary that you should be holy. It is not absolutely necessary that you should enjoy health, strength, friends, liberty, 15 amendments, or life but it is absolutely necessary that you should be holy. A man may see the Lord without worldly prosperity, without an earthly citizenship, but he could never see the Lord except he be holy. Therefore, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Friends, when I encountered the holiness of God, I was mesmerized. It was indescribable. Like Isaiah, my lips were shut. Oh, I thought I previously had a right view of God and I was wrong. But when I encountered him, I was in awe of him. I was afraid, but I also found hope. There it was, his loving kindness leading me to repentance, abounding in love to save me. And after atonement, the things of this world that still had appealing and some taste in them lost their taste. Sin was not pretty or appealing any longer. There was something far better. Beholding the beauty and glory of our God, worshiping him and exalting him forever, commands by the king that we have the privilege to honor and to obey. And the strange thing is I was given new desires to willfully enter myself into bondage, to the sovereign master who demands full allegiance and joyful obedience. Believers, the world today may not be excited about talking of the holiness of God or of sin, but this glorious passage, in fact, the whole word of God, begs us to differ. 
God made us alive in Christ, called us in holiness, and honored us by commissioning us. After he made us alive, there's immediately a question to be answered. Will you go? Will you obey? Do you have the right view of God, a high view of God, and the right view of yourself? Do you love holiness and hate sin? Are you presenting yourself as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, by the renewal of your mind, fully knowing and trusting the Lord who sanctifies us? And oh yes, He does sanctify us. He is faithful and holy through all eternity. In fact, lest we wonder that He is holy through all eternity, and if this vision of the thrice holy God was a one-off happening, let me read to you some of the verses from Revelation chapter 4. After this, I, John speaking, looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings with peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Do you hear that, Christian? Day and night, they never cease to say. Day and night, they never cease to say. Every second, every minute, every hour, every day, every week, every year, every decade, every century, every millennium, day and night, they never cease to say, holy, 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 holy. Holy, 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 holy. I hope that does not bore us today. That should be the song of our heart. Every single day, day and night, we should never cease to say, holy, holy, holy. That will give us a right view of God every single day, regardless of the circumstances we live in in this life. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim. Let us believe it like they do, those living creatures, and never cease to say it and declare it. Let us elevate our view of God and stir in us a zeal to exalt Him and worship Him. Is He not worthy? I sure hope our response would be yes. Let us pray. Holy God, we praise you and give you thanks this morning for this wonder of your word that proclaims to us that our God is holy, holy, holy. There's no one like you, O oh God. There is none beside you. We thank you that you are the holy God. 
who has made all things by the word of your power. We thank you that you have declared to us your holiness and showed us that we are sinners. And you did not leave us without hope, but you gave us your son, Jesus Christ, who received the wrath of the holy God to save us. I ask, O oh God, that your spirit would give us a high view of you so that every new day we would be renewed by the power of the gospel, by the message of our salvation, by the work that you have done, by who you are, O oh God, so that one day in heaven we would cast our crowns before you and say, worthy are you, O oh Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for created all things and by your will they existed and were created. May you receive glory and power and honor in the name of Christ our Lord, in our lives, in the life of this church, now and forever. Amen.